You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to episode 377 of Video Monsters. I'm Nathan. I'm Eric. I'm Dan. Hey guys, I, I just want to let you know that every time we podcast, my whole fucking heart explodes. And tonight is no exception <laughs> as we are joined by Anthony Cousins to discuss The Dead Zone. Say hello, Anthony. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah, Good. yeah. It has been uh, years, what, what, like three or four years, I think, since we've actually seen each other's faces. Yeah, I think that was 2018 or 19, maybe, in Knoxville. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it would have been 18, I think, because I'm pretty sure it's still the only time I've been able to make it up to Knoxville for Jeez. Knox Horror Fest. That feels so yep. long ago. So, so very long ago. Uh, it's still hard to process the, the COVID years as, like, full years that happened. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's th- th- there is pre-COVID where time was normal, and then COVID hit, and then wait, what? What just happened? It is, it, it's, it's insane. I've got a two-year-old, yeah. and uh, I still sometimes think that he's just like two months old. It's like, oh no, like he was just <laughs> born, like right at the start of COVID, and oh no, he's like two. Yeah, that would be yeah. weird. I can't imagine like thinking about it in that trip because i like like you guys said like i feel like the covid years i just forget that they even happen practically like it's like i am trying to erase them from my memory like my body is actively trying to be like no fuck that shit don't remember any of that get it out of here like 2019 is forever just last year that's last year yeah forever <laughs> yep we're just in that uh, constant loop um but uh but yeah parasite won best picture last year and it will forever be last year's best picture and that's that's where we're gonna. That's where we're gonna stay. You're just gonna watch Parasite every year, just like what? It's time for the Oscars. Got to prep for it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah. Um, we met Anthony uh, apparently like four years ago at Knoxville Horror Film Festival when I think that that was um, it was when the Bloody, Bloody Ballad of yeah, Squirt Bloody Reynolds. Bloody Ballad of Squirt Reynolds was was screening, and oh my god, I love that. We we don't have a whole lot of time to discuss everything that you've done. Which is sad because I want to discuss everything that you've done. I love, love your work so goddamn much. So before we start diving into Dead Zone, uh, go ahead and give our listeners just a, a quick synopsis of some of the things that you've done, uh, who you are, what you do, because I lately have been forgetting to do that until the very end of the episode. So I'm trying to stay on top of it this time. Cool. Um, well, I, I started with a short called When Susurus Stirs which is an adaptation of uh, a Jeremy Robert Johnson sword story that did far better than I ever expected on the festival circuit. And like, just people cared way more than I ever thought. I just wanted to make, cause I thought it'd be cool. And, and then I guess it was actually good or it resonated with people or whatever. So it was like, Oh shit, well let's try again. 
And so then I did the bloody ballad of Squirt Reynolds. Um, Very tonally then, different movies, despite being like great showcases for practical effects. But yeah, well, that was that was kind of the thing is like, you know, I didn't know if I was any good at this. I just kind of wanted to try making something, you know, and like, you know, so I was kind of like, oh fuck, I peaked with my first thing that I put out there, <laughs> like. I don't think your first thing is, I mean, you know, I made a bunch of trash before then, but like the first thing that I really tried to like really genuinely like make good and put out there and see what people thought, you know, did surprisingly well. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I can replicate that. Um, you know, should I do more body horror? I don't know. I don't have any other body horror stories I want to tell immediately. What the hell should I do? And that's kind of what I let go of that that fear and that idea and i was just like well what do i want to do next you know i've had this idea for a camp comedy slasher forever so i'll just do that next fuck it like i got nothing to lose i'll just go way in in the opposite direction and then that also did surprisingly well so then like since then it's just kind of been like i think i'm just gonna make what i want to see like that seems to be what's working for me because i don't think i'm exceptionally great at this i don't think these are the most polished or perfect, you know, things out there far from it. But, uh, the one constant is that I'm just making what I think in the moment would be interesting to see. Um, so that's what I've, I've kept doing. So then we did, I think after that was scare package one, we did a, a segment for, and then we did every time we meet for ice cream, your whole fucking face explodes, which was us trying to make something, uh, genuinely sweet and uh, a little heartwarming and still like with the gross factor but something maybe you could show your grandma um, and she would, be, she would be like I don't know this makes me feel weird but I think that was kind of cute <laughs> um, and then yeah, now Scare Package 2 is uh, on the festival circuit that we did we did a sequel to our segment in the first one uh, for this new Scare Package so we did the night he came back again, part four, the final kill in Scare Package One, and now this is the night he came back again, part six, the night she came back again. <laughs> um, nice. And it didn't make it into the whole mo- the end of the movie, but my my thinking is part five was like you know they tried to end the series with four, and then they're like, no, we got to make another one. It's still successful. <laughs> so five was like their season of the witch or their new beginning where it's like yeah really the, like who it's supposed to, you know the real killer everyone wants to see so then part six is all right let's get the real killer back let's bring back the, the final girl everyone wants to see you skip straight to jason lives um, yeah exactly yeah. So, so yeah that'll be uh, available soon for all of you to see well, I cannot. Wait I can't to wait see for that, that because mm. I I love Scare Package and I I, I think that your love of, uh, of of horror and body horror and just doing what you want absolutely shines through. Because when you said you know you're, you're not that good at it, stuff isn't that polished, I was like, well, that's just obviously bullshit because <laughs> you're they're they're so polished and they're so damn good. And I'm a fan of body horror. I know not everyone is. I I genuinely love body horror. But whenever I meet someone who's like, I, I, I just don't understand, like, what is it about body horror? Like, why, why do you like that? I'm like, watch this. It's disgusting, <laughs> but it's so, 
I don't know. Something about it is like getting at the core of humanity and getting at the core of just like <laughs> depravity and, and isolation and, and desire. And like all of that is being represented through these bodily changes. And like I, I show them when Susser stirs as a prime example of if you're going to watch body horror, this is a great way to try to, to try to actually get into it because it's not just gross for the sake of being gross. It's getting at the horrors of the body and forcing you to confront them. And then Bloody Battle, Ballad of Squirt Reynolds is just so fucking fun. So, like, <laughs> I I think that it's complete bullshit uh, that, that you don't think that your stuff is that good. I fucking adore it. If, if you've gone back and listened to some of the episodes, every time that we talk about your work, like, I'm, I'm just so giddy. Because I, I, I just love it. I love it so damn much. So... So yes, uh, it's true. Nathan actually j- sincerely does bring up when Susser stirs quite often on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Well, I'm going to keep I, with my yeah. belief that I am not sure if I am good or not because I think <laughs> I think it's keeping me. You know, I don't know. I know some of those people that that think they are like spinning bricks of gold every time they make something, and their work doesn't get any better. I think you kind of right, yeah. got to you got to hate your art. At least a little bit, so that you want to top it next time. You um, keep yourself and humble. appreciate. Yeah. You should always appreciate where, like, where you are and where you've come from, and like, like that was me then, and I did the best I could, and that's awesome. But I know I can do better now. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, you, you don't want to like you know, turn into like James Cameron or anything, and just never <laughs> striving to better. Oh, <laughs> the great! Do I want to turn into the greatest filmmaker of all time? <laughs> I'm just giving uh, Eric shit about James Cameron. Yeah, Nathan has made it his mission to just like hate on James Cameron as a way to like uh, make me angry for some reason. I don't know why. I think the problem is that it always works. <laughs> yeah, even though well, I know he's giving me shit about it, I, I still ever so slightly gets under my skin every time he says it. Yep, I will give you it's, shit about yeah, movies it I is, love. It's the burden of you know the guy in the friend group that that loves Avatar openly. Yeah, right. you're gonna get <laughs> you're gonna get that. <laughs> I get that exactly. too. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, so <clears throat> let's dive in to uh, to the, what we're supposed to be talking about tonight with Dead Zone. This this was a first time watch for me, and I I adored it. I'm still yeah I'm very underkinged, and uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff that I need to catch up on. And I'm so so glad that we went with this one. Um, when I reached out to you, there were a few different options that, that you tossed out of ones that you would want to discuss. And, and I think that there were two that I said, all right, I've not seen Dead Zone and I've not seen, I can't remember the other one. Um, and, and I left up to you. I, I, I can't yeah, remember. It was like Christine. Christine, I think, was one. And I don't know, maybe The Mist. I think it was The Mist, Christine, and The Dead Zone. Okay. Mm. So, uh, sorry, Robert, we skipped out on talking about The Mist. Uh, it's, it's one of Robert's <laughs> favorite movies. So... Um, so yeah, we went with Dead Zone, and I'm so glad that we did. But with all of the different King properties, like with everything that that you could have chosen, because you know I, I left it pretty open. It didn't have to be something that was you know like a straight, like very faithful adaptation. You could have gone with I, I don't know Lawnmower Man. I really wish someone would have gone with Lawnmower Man. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a bizarre film. Uh, so so yeah, with all the different King properties. 
Why were those the ones that, that stood out to you and why ultimately the Dead Zone? Well, I think as, as most people, probably the you know usual answer is I think The Shining is probably my favorite thing, you know, movie to come out of King's work, but obviously, you know, knownly hated by him and not very faithful and, you know, whatever. But I think Christine and the Dead Zone are, like, without a doubt, my other two favorite adaptations. Um, I think, like, Christine is such a masterpiece. I could watch that movie over and over. And uh, just the effects alone are just unbelievable. Um, And the Dead Zone, I think, is, like, one of the most faithful and successful adaptations of, of King's work and Walken's performance. And, you know, I was trying to think of things that maybe wouldn't be, you wouldn't be getting a lot of, hopefully. Um, yeah. And they're also like, yeah, Christine and the dead, and the dead zone, like John Carpenter directing Stephen King and David Cronenberg directing Stephen <laughs> King. Like, those are just like two crazy things that I think maybe, you know, uh, the average viewer doesn't even realize happened, you know, even if they mm-hmm. know those movies exist. Um, because Stephen King's name kind of overshadows who made the movie. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because like in my mind, when, when Nathan was like, yeah, Anthony Cousins wants to do uh, The Dead Zone, I was like, oh, of course it makes sense you, that you would want to do the Cronenberg film because you have, <laughs> you know, obviously you, you do a lot of body horror, but this is like, the least body horror outside of one scene that is I always forget is done off screen the the violence is off screen but it's still so impactful but yeah like it's it's interesting because this is easily like the the most like delicate Cronenberg film ever made <laughs> like it's so subtle mm-hmm. and um and I'm really fascinated by that I don't know if it's because of just like him working in the studio system or or what it is but the the way that he approaches the dead zone is really interesting to the point where like from what I read King wrote a screenplay that Cronenberg rejected because it was too violent or too dark or something, <laughs> which is really fascinating. Wow. <laughs> um, now, but yeah, that's something we'll definitely have to get into. Eric, was this the first time a uh, watch for you as well? Or have you seen No, this I'd seen before? this one before the dead zone is like, in my top three favorite Stephen King books of all time. I love the book so much. Um, and I watched the movie for the first time like a couple years ago, I think. Um, and I really liked it, but there was still something about it. It's it's such an episodic movie that it was a little hard to kind of grasp onto the first time, even though the book is also really episodic. It it it, it threads the, the characters in a little bit more like you get Stilson right at the very beginning rather than like literally an hour into the movie before Martin Sheen shows up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think the first time I watched it, it was just a little hard to kind of like get, wrap my hands around it because of how episodic it feels. But this time around, I really, really connected with it. And I think it's the perfect way to adapt this story. Dan, what about you? What is your history oh, with the Dead movie? Life? Fucked me up when I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> This was one of those, another one, you know, this Firestarter, Christine, <laughs> Cat's Eye, all of these came out on HBO within like two years of one another. So I watched them over and over and over. And all the De Laurentiis ones. 
Yeah, this was the first one that after watching it the first time, I didn't want to rewatch it immediately because it really messed me up. Um, the scene with this, which again, off screen, but for those of us with overactive imaginations, I plotted the course of the, those scissor points, you know, in my head. And yeah. it just gave me nightmares forever because it was something... At that, you know, I I knew there was a gun violence. I knew sword violence, you know, all these other forms of violence. And I was just like, I had never contemplated throwing myself mouth first on a pair of scissors. And yeah, like that fucked me up. That's the, the least effective form of suicide. Uh, possible. Like, oh I can't God. imagine anything more awkward <laughs> and painful. You know, I, I feel like he would have just lobotomized himself more than anything else if he had gone up or, you know, just made it hard to breathe. He went, he, I feel like he would have had to have hit himself just right in order to make that effective. The aim you had, he had to have, man, is just... Oh, not the aim, just the intent and the will to yeah. just keep going down. I mean, that's like... That, that's the thing. Is I don't know. The, that's like bargain basement seppuku. Yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> how do you fucking do that? <laughs> way, way to go, man. That's... That's one of the things for me during that scene was the way that like he was getting himself prepped for it. Mm -hmm. I don't in in my mind where when I was completing the scene, he didn't throw himself on those scissors. He very slowly like pushed his head down onto them, Mm -hmm. which Uh, made it so much more just so much more. I, I, I don't know something about it to me made that scene so much more impactful and we're just going to go ahead and dive straight into this apparently uh and also major spoilers we're going to you know discuss the ending and spoil this entire movie so if you've never seen the dead zone go watch it it's fucking great the thing that i think made that scene so terrifying and so impactful and so getting at the heart of why that dude was just like the fucking worst was that he did it slow and and it almost to me uh, like showed more about his sadism when he was raping and killing the the girls. The fact that he was able to, I, I don't know if he was enjoying killing himself or not, but there was something about the intention behind it that made it so much more of a. Yeah. It it made it less of a well. I just have to do this to to you know keep mm. from getting in trouble. So I'm just gonna slam my head down as fast as I can and get it over with. It it seems so much more. I can't even think of the word. Because it is it's, interesting it's, as a penetrative yeah. act. Yes. Yeah. It Thank feels you. almost like he I is was, trying to pay a penance. Uh, Cronenberg kept his boner off screen for that scene, probably. <laughs> you know, because I feel like that would have been a note Cronenberg would have. Like, no, you've got to have a serious erection while you're doing it. <laughs> well, he is naked. I don't like, know he, if he's going to get past the Spencers, but... They definitely <laughs> like let you know that he is nude when this happens yeah. in the bathtub. I, I never, never remember in the book. Now, but... like, Sorry, go ahead, Anthony. Uh, I never thought until now uh, about the fact that he probably thought about this quite frequently. Like, <laughs> you know, I guess I always just thought, like, you know, in the moment, he's just like, oh, shit, I finally got caught. I got to off myself before they come and get me. But it's like, no, wait, the way he did it, he must have known, like, yeah. this is, you know, these are, this is my weapon of choice. Like, it's, it's, it's so crazy that Cronenberg kind of like just injects this little mini gi- giallo movie in the middle of <laughs> yeah. uh, the dead zone. Cause I mean, it is in the book that there is this killer and he's, 
helping figure out who it is, but it's not this like black gloved, you know, guy who has this special weapon or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's definitely not scissors. So yeah, yeah, the fact that he uses the scissors, the thing that he always uses in his crimes to kill himself, is just like this poetic justice that he instills upon himself. Yeah. Yeah, almost. And it feels like in any other story, this would have been a much bigger story. Right, yeah. This would be the main movie of anything else, and here it's just like a 25-minute snippet, you know? Yeah. This little episode. Yeah, it's it's almost like... Almost like he was saving himself for his final victim to be, you know, like mm-hmm. his his grand reveal to the world. It was, mm. yeah, and and that's such a fascinating thing for Cronenberg to do. Like, you know, like like both of you were just saying, this in any other movie would have been the movie. Like Dead Zone would have mm-hmm. been, oh yeah, you know, the one with the serial killer going around, with, you know, uh, raping girls and killing them with scissors, and then you know, in the last ten minutes when they finally catch him, yeah, this is just one of the many. Misadventures that Christopher Walken finds himself on, and just like how much of a hell must that be for him? And mm. and that's one of the things that I do love so much about this movie. As much as I want to see the full movie of just that middle section, I'm glad that that's not the movie. I'm glad that that's just part of it because it gives such a uh, it, it gives a much more comprehensive view of what Christopher Walken is going through. It gives mm. you more of the. This is why his life sucks. I mean, like here he is, just trying to, trying to help out the cops, trying to maybe I can glean something. Oh no, I am like here watching this happen, and I couldn't do anything to stop it, and I couldn't save him, and mm. and like if that's just part of what he's doing, if that's towards the beginning of his you know powers, yeah, how hellacious must his life be? Oh, it, it has totally shaped my worldview when it comes to psychics. Like any time, like, you know, you go to Salem and they have, you know, all the palm readers out and the tarot card readers out. And I'm always just like, fuck you. If you could tell the future, you would hate your life. <laughs> you, know? you need to be like Chris. You would be Rock. hiding away in a closet. You, yeah, you like- would be haunted by this shit, not touching every possible stranger because people are all terrible and we all have terrible stories. You wouldn't want to know them. Like, you would be haunted by all this shit. <laughs> That's really interesting because so there's like this this like local psychic family here in Minneapolis uh, called the Bodines and like I knew one of them through a job and so like when I was in film school I was like <clears throat> taking a documentary class and had to do a documentary on like anything and so I was like oh, I'll do a documentary on this psychic family I know <laughs> and so I interviewed the dad who's like. A, a career psychic like does these ghost hunts and you know uh yeah like he's like a psychic to the stars and and stuff like that and he was like really candid with me and just straight up said i hate it i tried to talk my kids into doing anything else i like i tried to keep them away from it because it was forced upon me by my mother and i despise every second of it and i would wow. i would love to do anything else i want my kids to do anything else and I didn't know what I was going to get when I did this documentary, but I was like, whoa. Like, I, yeah, I really believe I this believe. from you now because... That dude I 100% believe. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. So it's interesting that you say that because I feel like this... Yeah, that's totally true. And that's definitely a really beautiful aspect of this story that, that King put in there. It's just that 
every time this guy uses his power, it fucks up his life a little bit more and or traumatizes him. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's how it would be. <laughs> it's an interesting film to watch in, in the current landscape where we're just absolutely fucking pummeled by superhero movies and TV shows and stuff all the time. Because this is really basically like a real life superhero origin story. <laughs> Only it fucking sucks. <laughs> It's like, no, this is exactly how this would be. It would be mm-hmm. incredibly depressing. Your life would be yeah. ruined. And uh, and can it would, never and find- you can yeah, never be happy. You can never find love. Everything is constantly going to be. There's a, there's a great little tidbit in the book where, um, you know, they have the scene with uh, the reporter who comes in, Richard Dees, who is also the... Uh, protagonist of the night flyer which we're talking about later (laughs) Uh, but the reporter in this one he comes in and he just does the thing where he's like trying to you know show that christopher walken is you know a joke or whatever and then christopher walken says something about how the dude's sister committed suicide and he's like oh fuck you you freak but in the book (laughs) he prints this thing that talks about how uh johnny smith is a hoax and he's like Mm. relieved because he's like oh finally maybe people will leave me alone now yeah, because mm-hmm. they don't they think it's a hoax, um, and then he ends up getting involved in the serial killer thing, and and <laughs> you know gets back on back on top again, baby. Uh, <laughs> well, and um, that's one of the things that I, I think is um, really handled well through uh, Walken's performance, but also just something that I really appreciate with this story is every. It seems like every experience that he has is just getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> You know, like watching all of those kids drown under the ice, watching essentially World War Three, like everything that he's seeing, it seems like each experience is only getting worse, but he still can't stop himself from helping when he has that information, which I think because it, it would be so easy for him to just not do anything with it. You know, he tries to run away from it. He tries to uh, to, to live life of a recluse, chasing, changing his name to try to avoid all of that. But whenever the situation comes up, he can't not do anything, which I think mm. is a. I, I think that that shows some really good character development over the course of the film to take you from where he starts as you know a teacher trying to better the minds of the next generation, all the way to well, I have to kill this uh, the senator before he becomes president to save future <laughs> generations, and so just that constant view of. I need to do this for the betterment of everyone else, despite what it might do to me. Mm. I think it's just a great character it's, development for him. It's such a smart way to adapt the book because Johnny Smith is such a passive character. Like he's a very passive protagonist for the most part because it's, you know, the movie is set up where all of these things are happening to him. You know, he has no control. He gets into an accident that's not his fault or anything. Um, and Cronenberg is so smart about like building it out in a way where it's like, oh, before he gets into his accident, he gives you that little moment between him and Sarah where Sarah's like, why don't you just come in? Like, just stay the night with me. But he's too much of a gentleman to agree to it. And that seals his fate. And even like, even later on in the movie, whenever he's like, there are so many little moments that I noticed throughout where he's constantly very passive and it's very, but it's very easy to get him to agree to certain things. Like, so like, for example, there's a, whenever he's working for the, uh, the rich dude, I can't remember his name. And he comes in and the guy's like, Hey, you want something to drink? And he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, come on. How about a beer? And he's like, okay, sure. Like very, but he just kind of <laughs> tossed it off. Like, okay, fine, whatever. 
like it's very easy for him to, like he doesn't really seem like he has much agency until you get those moments where like he gets the vision of the kid who's going to drown and then he comes in and fucks shit up with his cane and tells him the ice is going to break and you get the great Christopher Walken moment it makes those moments so much more impactful because he is actively making those decisions um, and it's also brilliant because like it it shows you that he is acting out of genuine compassion so much so that you sympathize with a political assassin by the end of the film <laughs> like in the book they, they they do this thing where he 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 gets the headaches which they have in the movie but in the book he has headaches because he's like has a brain tumor or something so it's like oh he's gonna die anyway but in the book they take or in the movie they take that out and i think it's a really smart decision because it's like no he's not doing this because he has you know because he's gonna die anyway he's doing this because he genuinely feels like I have to do this. I have no choice but to do this for the good of everyone. Um, it's it's such a such a smart adaptation. Walking is just brilliant. I think the movie like adapts this best it can. Uh, but the fact that in the book, he's not just like having these visions. He's not just watching these uh, these possibilities of the future play out. He's experiencing them. Like they are yeah. happening to him. You know, he's almost like possessed in a way and like transported to this situation. And they, they do it really well in the first vision that he has of like the girl in the in the in the fire, in the house fire. Like he's in the bed. He's like we actually see him in the vision he's having. I wish that would happen a little bit more throughout the movie. Well it mm. happens at the at the gazebo too. He's really there. It happens at the um, Oh, and that's such a brilliant moment too, because he's he's like, I, I did nothing. It's like he knows he's seeing a memory, and yet he still feels guilty that he didn't do anything to stop exactly. it. Exactly. That's such a great line. I did nothing. I stood there, and I watched, and I did nothing. Because I think that's what truly compels him to, like, there is no choice here. I have yeah. to do something about this. Is It's not just a potentiality, and it's not just this thing that he witnessed and went, like, well, that would be fucked up if that happened. It's like, no, it it is going to happen. I know what it feels like if that is going to happen. So I have to do everything I can to stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, especially taking the whole uh, if you can go back in time and kill Hitler, would you? Like, how many people have had that conversation or something along those lines? And it's really easy to to think about that or talk about that in these hypothetical terms, or like the oh well, you know, there's there's a, any number of outcomes could have happened if you had done this. Someone worse could have. Like, people mm. have those uh, philosophical debates all the time. Yeah, Stephen King wrote a whole book about it. He wrote an book about <laughs> only it. only with JFK. But one of the things, one of the things that I think is so fascinating, uh, again about uh, the story and about the way that Christopher Walken's character is actually experiencing these things, is it takes it out of that philosophical, theoretical. Well, what would you have done in this situation? And it's giving him those experiences, like you said, when he was at the gazebo and he says, "I, I did nothing. I just stood there." He's experiencing these traumas he is he's there living these experiences with them so it's not just a oh wouldn't it be terrible if this person was out killing people oh wouldn't it be terrible if someone died in a fire oh wouldn't it be like it's not just hypothetical for him he has so many other people's traumas that he's living with that when it does finally get to martin sheen and like thinking about all of the trauma that that will cause it's no longer just a, a, a question for him. It's no longer just that philosophical, well, what would you do? You know, would you do this for the betterment of society? Would you do this? Because he is living with all of that trauma 
and and so he's taking that into <laughs> into his experience as a I have to do this. You know, I have to do something, not just a well something should be done. And and again, taking it from that theoretical, taking it from that hypothetical into the if I don't do this, I am now responsible just as responsible for all of these deaths because I did nothing. I think that that's a great way to have that gazebo scene where he said, I did nothing. I just stood there and I did nothing. It's a great mm-hmm. way to, again, give you so much of that development for why he feels as compelled as he does uh, at the end. And it's just just so beautifully done. Uh, and, and yeah, Walken, Walken's great. I love him. <laughs> It's, it's such so a good, good idea, like to have Walken in this role. What's <laughs> from what I read, Stephen King originally wanted uh, Stephen King himself wanted Bill Murray to play this role, which is <laughs> fascinating. Wow. But Christopher Walken is such. I feel like you kind of need an actor who's a little bit eccentric in this role because if you get just like a bland, I feel like it's the mistake that so many filmmakers make, where it's like you get a, a Johnny Smith, like John Johnny Smith is the most generic protagonist name you could possibly come up with. <laughs> and I feel like the uh, a lot of times filmmakers are like, oh yeah, we want to give you a blank slate so you can kind of fill yourself in and you can kind of like question like, oh, what would you do in this situation or whatever? And it's like, no, that's boring. Like we need someone to hang on to. And getting a guy like Walken who has who is such an eccentric person and is so kind of, uh, I don't want to say he's odd looking, but he does not look like any other human being who has ever existed. <laughs> he, you know, he has a very <laughs> unique style. He's if very yeah. has powers. It's someone that looks like him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And God, I love it in the beginning of the movie too, when he's teacher Chris Walken and he's got like his little <laughs> chili bowl looking haircut and his glasses. And he's so like when he's teaching in that first scene, he looks like he's just fucking giddy to be there teaching these kids who don't give a shit about what he's doing, but he's just got a huge smile on his face and he's just loving life. It's so good. Talking about Sleepy Hollow. Also. Talking about Sleepy Hollow, yeah, which is, you know, <laughs> he brings up many, many times in the movie to the point where it's like, okay, we get the the theme, the thematic, you know, resonance. But I also just kind of like that, like, oh, Christopher Walken then later played the Headless Horseman. He could yeah. see Sleepy the Hollow future, movie. guys. He could see the future. <laughs> he knew what was going on. <laughs> yeah, I guess in a you know in a world where we all thought Heath Ledger was like a bad choice for Joker, and you know, oh, Adam Sandler is gonna do this like gritty drama, you know, and like, and then it turns out to be unbelievable. Like maybe Bill Murray would have worked in some alternate reality. I would be it's so hard, curious. It's to see hard it. to see. I what I read, I read that too, and also that. Cronenberg's uh, uh, first choice for John Smith was the guy that ends up playing Dodd. Yeah, um, yeah. And they were like, "He's not, he's not big. You, you need a big name in this role, <laughs> or a bigger name." And that's why Walken happened. But yeah, I agree. It's, I think it's one of his. I mean, he's always just so hypnotizing to watch Walken. Mm-hmm. But this is, I don't know he's so charming in this, and even though he is playing the creepy psychic, I still just like want to hang out with them and. <laughs> Have him be my teacher. <laughs> yeah. Also, he has that like cool ass peacoat. He just looks amazing oh, yeah. in this movie. Um, he looks like he, a superhero or a villain. He, I don't know. He does. There's something that's just like it's such a simple look that he has, but it feels like so iconic and something that only he was able to pull off, like with the popped collar and all that stuff. Like it just looks great. He has like almost like a dark man quality to him, you know? Like, and the fair thing. I don't know. Whenever I think of like, I don't know. 
fair genre sequences I think of Darkman. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> oh yeah, because he does have like the whole carnival thing. Like, I guess the I'm trying to remember in the movie. I know in Darkman, of course, they have like the big, you know, fucking pink elephant thing. Yeah. It's, um, I think in the movie it's just the roller coaster. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, he gets a the, bit of a headache on the roller coaster, which could maybe be to hint at the fact that maybe he's already like predestined to have this type of power, especially like in a roller coaster, and then he gets in a car crash. Like mm-hmm. maybe that's them connecting it because it's definitely like set up way more in the book that like no, he's gonna get these powers. Um, yeah, because he had like head trauma as a kid, and yeah. And but there's a the, whole in the book. There's a whole wheel of fortune situation at the yeah at the carnival, carnival. which is a great scene. I do kind of wish that was in the. It's so good. my my biggest disappointment with the movie is that I think that the dead zone the book is like such a beautiful romance, and I think that the movie does a pretty good job of it in the short amount of time that it has. Like you get the sense of loss. But you also don't get as much time with Johnny and Sarah in the beginning to really set that up to make it like really twist your heart when he yeah when he loses her. I was just about to say. Uh, well, first off, I was going to say I think the Dead Zone is in the Final Destination series, uh, where you have <laughs> yeah. Walken trying to fight death and death trying to you know kill people. Uh, <laughs> you got a whole uh, uh, Unbreakable Mr. Glass situation going on there. Um, <laughs> But but I was just about to say, this movie is it's it's such a sweet, kind, loving, romantic story, and Cronenberg really is just a hopeless romantic at heart. With how many yeah. love stories he puts into all of his vile, <laughs> disgusting movies, uh, I mean, The Fly is the greatest love story ever told. I, I I've said this many times. I and I'm not even fucking like I know that sounds like a joke, but I'm. <laughs> A hundred percent serious. I disagree <laughs> with you, but fine. Um, but but yeah, like when I was watching this, even though the romance isn't a huge part of the story, I I definitely got the feeling that it was a huge part of uh, of Johnny Smith's life. You know, like yeah, and and not just from the loss, not just because you don't get much of it at the beginning. You get like, oh, we can't kiss in the hall because the coworkers were going to get fired. Blah blah blah. Like you get enough yeah. little cute. It's very stuff. sweet, you know. Yeah, like he and Brooke Adams have good chemistry, and but the the scene for me that really cemented like what their romance meant and why it was so heartbreaking when they lost each other was when they hooked back up. You know, when, yeah. uh, when she came over and she's like, you know, don't you think it's been long enough? Five years, ten years, whatever it's been. And and they hook up and like he's there with her kid and he seems like he would be such a good dad. And then uh, when, when his dad walks in, he's like, what have you two been doing? Making furniture? <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, because uh, that's because the dad was like going and making furniture for this other woman after his wife died and <laughs> all this stuff. Like it, it was that's so good. The, the way that entire scene played out, it was so sweet. And it was like, I could see these two working it out. Like, I, I could see them rekindling. And it's, it gives you just enough of a glimpse of what his life could have been. Exactly. And yeah. then when he says, are we going to see each other again? And she says, not like this. Like, I was like, oh, my God, that's heartbreaking. You don't yeah. get that much of their relationship, but you get so much jam packed into that scene that when she's like, this was it like this was our closure now i'm finally done with you and not in like a heartless way not like she was doing it to try to control him or manipulate him manipulate him 
like I don't think that she was malicious. I think that she also had just as much love and just as much loss and longing. And there was that question of what if. And I think that for both of them, they had that realization of, oh, this if. And I think that for both of them, it was we could be really happy. And for Christopher Walken's character, it was so this means this is what we need to do. And uh, and for Sarah's character, I think that she was much more of a I think that we would be really happy and I can't do that to whatever his name was. I, I feel like it's Mark, but who knows? Walt or something, Walt. I think. The Walt sounds like an even more dumb name, so it probably was Walt. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, there's. it's almost like she knew that they could have been happy and she was happy. And even though she, because she had already experienced that loss once, she wasn't going to actively decide to go through that loss again of losing yeah. her current husband, losing the current life. And again, none of it said. None of that is yeah. shown on screen. None of that is spoken. But I felt so strong, like so much that came across that the rest of the movie, I, I feel like, I feel like most of his decisions from that point on weren't just trying to escape his powers, but trying to escape his his loneliness and trying to trying to avoid people again, not just to not have his visions, but that fear of reconnecting with someone just to lose them again because he knows everyone's going to die and this sucks. So much that I feel like just came yeah. across. It it really does. That's it's such a such a good scene. I especially love it when his dad is like, oh, it's so nice to have a family around this table again. Yeah. Uh, really tugs at the heartstrings. Yeah. Cronenberg, the old softy. So, so I guess we have to, we have to get into this because uh, this, this book and I guess the movie to a certain extent uh, seem to really gain a lot of favor over the past few years due to certain um, <laughs> political events that have taken place. <laughs> Does this feel like a good time to bring this up? Are we ready to dive into that? Yeah, sure. Let's let's talk about how Martin Sheen is very so what do you, Trump. What do you think about this Greg Stilson guy, guys? You think you'd vote <laughs> for him? You think he would have a chance of being elected? One thousand. It's funny because as a kid, especially after reading the book, I'm like, how could anyone vote for this dude? He literally begins the book by murdering a dog. Yeah, he's a door to door Bible salesman, and door to door Bible just like, kicks the shit out of the dog. Guy. Was a dog. People would. I, feel, I was like, people would just know this guy was no good. And now I'm like, oh, people. They are, tone it down a lot in the movie. Oh, yeah. But still, Martin Sheen does just. Okay, what, I, him and playing presidents. I guess he just wants to play both ends, of the, you know, sides of the coin here. <laughs> um, but he just does such a great job of playing that that Bible salesman of a character still even though it doesn't really get into that in the movie, you can just tell yeah. he, he's a bit of a huckster. He's a good glad hander. Yeah. Like yeah. Whenever, uh, the, his introduction when he's like shaking Johnny or no, actually he doesn't shake Johnny's hand. That's such a good fake out when he's about to touch his hand and he gives him the button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so awesome. And um, I mean, he is perfect for that. I mean, you can see right through him and you can see the psychopath and the red mm-hmm. flag, but he also is just, He's Martin Sheen. He's so yeah. damn charming. Like you can tell how <laughs> if you're gullible enough, you're gonna be the one that falls for him. Oh, first season of West Wing, I kept waiting for the turn. Still, I'm like, no, 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 wait, something's gonna happen. 
<laughs> well, even the uh, I can never remember the the rich dude's name. Roger, I guess, is, is Roger Stewart, um, played by uh, I'm looking on IMDb, Anthony Zerby. Uh, he's so good, but yeah, he's the one who, who's like the rich guy who you know is trying to keep uh, Stilson in his corner just because he doesn't want to piss him off or whatever. And they have that great scene where he and uh, Johnny are sitting on the couch watching the campaign speech and. Um, Stuart's just sitting there like, how can people not see through this guy? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us were experiencing that <laughs> over the past few years. Like, how the fuck does any of this happen? It's because... The thing is, with the guy that we got, I feel like if he uses a baby as a human shield, there's still a way that he gets... Oh, 100%. Dan and I were talking about this before. Beforehand. If I shot someone, you know, point blank in the middle of Times Square, I'd still get like, like yeah, I think if you used a baby yeah. shield, you would maybe still <laughs> be like, ah, oh, that's bold. No, you people, know, people would still be like, no, 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 he showed the killer the, the, the innocent the in order to change his heart. So that he wouldn't do bad anymore. It was, no, you know, yeah. yeah. He, he would blame it on Antifa. To save the baby. He would say that yeah. it's an Antifa it baby. baby. <laughs> yeah, the, the Antifa baby was trying to attack him. Yeah, so uh, you so, didn't see what that baby did to me before. That baby told me it wanted to save my life. Yeah, you so I think he's that, a true, true American patriot. I'm, I'm, award, I'm bestowing him the uh, yeah. national medal, whatever fucking medal. I'm giving him a medal. Is what I'm trying to say. Right. So I think that the reason that medal, uh, the the Bible salesman aspect of Martin Sheen. Uh, you know, works not only just uh, not only in the book, but the way that it's presented in the movie, even without having that much shown. And the reason that Trump is also, you know, risen to power and all of that fucking bullshit. It's because both of them are selling people on what they want to hear. It's selling them on those empty promises. It's selling them Mm. on this is how this is going to make things better for you. Yeah, his whole campaign thing when he does his speech is like, what has happened to this country? You know, Mm. like, he's not wearing a suit. He's wearing, you know, coveralls or whatever shit he's doing. I'm I'm, I'm one of the people. He's probably a man of the people. I speak for the people. Surprised there wasn't a dude selling pillows next to him. The uh, and, And it's really easy to look at, like, yeah, all of these gullible people who are falling for it. But Sarah also fell for it. Like her and her husband were out campaigning for him. And and I think that that also shows the power is it wasn't just it wasn't just, you know, like the um, it wasn't just the downtrodden and the people who felt like they had been put upon regardless of, you know, how much of that is, is, is true. Like it wasn't just the people who felt so downtrodden that they needed any sort of false hopes. It was all people looking at like oh yeah he's finally going to fix all of these issues and and yeah it's that shucksterism it's that bible salesman of i can see what your weakness is and i'm going to use that against you to try mm. to get you on my side and and just the way that it's done and cuz yeah you don't see that much of martin sheen doing that but every scene that you see him in you're just like i don't like this dude i i do not like him at all and I'm glad that they actually don't start with showing him as like the worst so that there's a little glimpse yeah. of, oh, well, is is this other rich dude the one who's bad and just trying to, you know, use Christopher Walken to to take down this other guy that is uh, getting in his way? And then like two scenes later, it's, oh, I saw that uh, you were sleeping with that girl who is a supporter of mine so I can ruin your life. 
And it's like, oh, no, no, he's literally the worst. Okay, cool. Um, mm, all right, yeah, he's he is the worst, but people mm. still love him. And it's... I, I think that <laughs> yeah. it's also... <laughs> go ahead. I, I'm just thinking of the vision of the future where he's like... He, he's like literally a crazy person, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because he's like, I had a vision <laughs> while I was asleep. I also too love that scene is so funny because it's like the the idea of launching a nuke with like a hand scanner mm. is really interesting. It's like a hand they do the hand scanner and then <laughs> he just pushes a little button. He kind of hits some bloopy bloops on the <laughs> dial. <laughs> I just love the way that that's that's visualized. It's yeah. really they're it's like, like unmarked. Like it's like what are these? Yeah, glowing like, yeah, squares. Seems like a very rudimentary way to start a nuclear war. I but mean, that you know. that is one of the parts that really like stuck with me as a kid was like the missiles are flying, gentlemen. Like that, that moment is just like he's so. And I think that's a really fascinating thing that I don't think uh, aligns with like Trump necessarily. Is this guy? I really believe this dude thinks he had a vision that like he was meant to be president and he was <laughs> meant to push this button. It's like man, I don't know, like. Maybe he has a tumor also that's like, yeah. you know, giving him false visions or, you know, he's like the anti Johnny or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, um, but I think that's that. Yeah, that's a really fascinating aspect of this is this dude feels like he's being called to do these things also. Yeah. Whereas Trump, it kind of feels like he just ran for president because he wanted some clout and wanted to get some campaign money and <laughs> maybe start a TV network. And then he just kind of like, oh, shit, I guess I'm president now. <laughs> the look on his face when he actually won was just kind of like, oh, no. Like, oh, he was not expecting this to happen. Yeah, with He looks like yeah, Johnny whenever he gets the visions, like doing the little <laughs> jolt. That's the other thing that scarred me as a kid is like the way that he jerks, like when he ha- when he's like holding someone and having a vision and like the, sh- the string, like sting that accompanies that. Yeah. I don't know. That was like really haunting to me as a kid. It's it's really well done because it's the kind of thing that could easily come across as like silly and ridiculous. But Walken plays it so well. To be fair, I read that the apparently Cronenberg was movie. shooting like he would shoot a three fifty seven Magnum off screen mm-hmm. to startle Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Walken's idea though. Too it was Walken's idea, yeah, because he's yeah. he's yeah he really gets into it. But yeah, I mean it sells it. He's so good at it. But yeah, it looks like it's painful. I mean, you can sense the pain that he feels. Yeah, and I do wish I think there is like kind of a an almost passive line um, when he meets with his doctor again about the fact that he has a tumor or that or that it like he's he's getting worse. Yeah, as time goes on while he's using this thing, which yeah, I don't know. I think could could be highlighted a, a little better. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely downplay that element in the movie, which, which again, I don't mind it because I kind of like the idea of taking out the overt reference to him having a tumor or something because it it does make it feel like a more altruistic act when he sacrifices himself in the end. Which is kind of wild that Cronenberg doing this movie didn't jump on that as his like body horror, you know, gateway. <laughs> yeah. The tumor thing. Um, I think it really says something that, like, the thing that we and I think most people like jump straight to when talking about this movie is the scissor moment, which is like 
the one thing clearly that like Cronenberg added to this story. Mm. And it's the one thing that like really stands out amongst a lot of great things. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, speaking of Cronenberg and like surprise that there's not more body horror, that there's not more of some of that over the top elements to it. I, I love the fact that there's not that in the story because so many of Cronenberg's stories, um, I, I think that there's a, I think that all of these stories, at least the ones that I've seen, uh, are great, are, are just really great stories looking at humanity. Like they're getting at some core element. They're not just, oh, here's a fun gore scene. Like there's a much deeper story going on. Um, you know, like when we did, um, oh my God, why am I drawing a uh, blank <laughs> on the, the one with the, uh, the tape player in his belly? Videodrome. Yes, Videodrome. I, was, I can't believe that I forgot the name of that. So yeah, like uh, when we were talking about Videodrome a few years ago, uh, it was right at the tail end of um, doing daily <laughs> episodes. And so like Eric and I were just consumed with horror movies and podcasting. And this was what we ended things on. And it hit us hard because we're mm. like, oh my God, we are, we, we are uh, James Woods. We are the Videodrome. <laughs> we are being so consumed by this, and like it is getting into our bellies, and and so like there's there's so much about his stories, about Cronenberg's stories that I think that are fascinating and amazing, and the way that he represents them visually, so over the top, are really really effective at showing like how dark humanity can be sometimes. But I think that he has great stories at their core with just gore and stuff on top of him. I mean, even Shivers, mm-hmm. I think, is is an amazing story that should then just thrown in some uh, sex zombies uh, really at the end. <laughs> and so, like, to, to have all of those elements of Cronenberg and then strip away the gore, I think that yeah. you still have that very strong element of what does this trauma look like? How is this going to affect you? What? Uh, how would this change the way that you interact with other people? How would this change the way that you think about yourself? Like all of these things that I think if it hadn't been uh, a King story or if he had been given a little bit more free reign to go a bit more over the top, I think that it would have been incredibly effective and he would have shown so much. Like the tumor would have been showing a, a, a ton of this is how it is eating away at his body. But I think that would have turned some people away. You know, like we started this episode, not everyone loves body horror. And I think that with this story, if you had more of that gore and more of that over-the-top visuals, for some people, for us, would have been like, yeah, this is why this scene and what they show is really getting at what this element is. You strip away the gore and it's just, this is what this element is. This is what real people are going through. Not Maybe not the psychic visions and, uh, you know, <laughs> jumping back and forth in time, but dealing with the, this is how this immediate decision is going to have a lasting impact. I mean, even yeah. uh, e- even the, uh, the ice hockey scene where he comes mm-hmm. in, it's like the ice will break. You know, Christopher Walken aside, <laughs> when the dad's just like, no, you've been wanting to play this game for a while, you're going to this game, you know? The one small decision of sending your kid to an ice hockey game that could have destroyed not just his life, but the life of so many people around him. And I think that this movie does a great job of getting at that element of how one small decision can have so many lasting impacts without having to do the over the top visuals. 
Yeah. And uh and yeah, like when when Martin Sheen does hold up the baby, part of it was like, oh, Christopher Walken's gonna shoot the baby to make sure that he also kills Martin Sheen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm glad that didn't happen for a number of reasons, but there was so much happening in that scene of this one decision is going to have such a lasting impact. And and then you know uh, when, when the papers show like you know he's uh, he, he's ruined because he held a baby up as defense. I started thinking what would have happened if he had killed him. You know, like how different would the world have been? He would have become a martyr. Exactly. And then someone worse would have taken his place. And then, and yeah. So in like everything that happened, again, it's all these little tiny decisions that have such lasting impacts that I'm, I'm glad that those are the core rather than uh, some body horror driving it. it. It's such a great subversion that like ultimately he completely fucks up his mission and it works out even better for him. It's like the only time (laughs) where something he does actually works in his favor. (laughs) Yeah. And it, you know, like you were saying earlier, this is almost like a superhero origin story from the outside. Anyone that's not on this journey with Johnny, like he definitely died a villain, you know, even though Mm -hmm. he outed this guy as a monster and like ruined his political career this dude is still just going to go down in history probably as a crazy man that thought he was a psychic and could see the future and tried to assassinate this guy like yeah. that is his legacy that he's leaving behind and it's kind of like you know the villain that you can sympathize with of doing like the mm-hmm. lesser evil um but yeah it is it is fascinating that this is i think it does beg the question like is this so not Cronenberg because it is his first uh, studio movie and he's like playing, you know, playing like politically that way. But I think more so it goes to what, what you were saying that, uh, you know, he uh, obviously he leans toward body horror and loves body horror, but he needs justification. That's what makes body horror, good body horror great. Yeah. That's what makes good, any good horror great is justification behind it. There's not shock for shock's sake or gore for gore's sake. And there's not a whole lot of justification for body horror within this, you know, and this is sandwiched between Videodrome and the fly, like probably the two most body horror movies he did. And they work so well because they're justified. And I think the one moment that's most body horror and most Cronenberg here is the scissor moment. Um, Mm-hmm. And why does that work for us and resonate with us? Because it is justified. Of course, this is how this character would off himself. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just it doesn't feel out of place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, honestly, the more that we talk about it, too, the more I'm kind of thinking like this is kind of the ultimate body horror. It's just not external. The, like ultimate body horror movie. It's just not externalized at all. I mean, because you have to think about like being in Johnny's position. His body is literally revolting against him. I mean, he starts off like not even being able to walk for one, but like just the idea that like you can't even touch another human being without like risking some kind of horrible vision of the future. Like, imagine having these powers. Like, <laughs> I I would wear gloves all the time. Like, I would be <clears throat> like Rogue in X Men because I'd be like, I would I don't want to fucking know anything. Like, I would never be able to touch my children. Because I ha- I don't want to know anything about what's going like I don't want to know your future so, I don't want to like start like living my life in complete fear of trying to avoid every horrible thing that could possibly happen especially because you uh, don't know how many of those really, things happen because really. of responding to this other thing and, right you know, 
So two things. Uh, one, more on the jokey side, and then one uh, a bit more serious. That brings up a really good point of what the hell must it have been like for him and Sarah when they did finally get together? Like, was it? I was actually just thinking about this when I was saying it. Yeah, what was what was happening I, there? Did he, he cannot tell the future with his penis? That's just yeah. He just kept his hands off. <laughs> or maybe he did work. I don't know. Yeah. Oh my god. It's uh, very funny. More importantly, though. Eric, you brought this up a lot earlier that, uh, that that he's very passive throughout. I was thinking about this, not when I was watching it, but I, uh, early today, maybe when I was thinking about this movie and I was thinking about, again, like how one small decision can have such a lasting impact on uh, those around us. How many of the things that that happened through this movie would have been any different had johnny not done anything like when uh when he told the nurse that his daughter uh, that her daughter was in a fire okay well the firemen were already there taking care of it they had already saved her so like that didn't do anything except send the mom home earlier she didn't actually do anything to save her the firemen were already there um when when he it's true that like in the vision you never know for sure if the daughter is, dies in the fire Right, and uh, and I guess you just maybe, see it happen in the moment. I guess maybe she could have called the fire departments, and that's what got them there. But no, maybe yeah, maybe. <laughs> also, but, real quick, I just want to say yes. the image of a goldfish bowl boiling is the such a brilliant <laughs> visual. I absolutely love that so much. Every time I see it, I'm just like, "Fuck, that's so smart." Well, there's the body <laughs> horror. It's just fish body horror. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like all of the things that happen. It, it seems like with each different experience that he has, there's a little bit more control and a little bit more actually having an impact and a little bit more um, actually doing something about these visions. Because like even when he holds the doctor's hand, he's like, oh, your mother's still alive. All right. Well, like that didn't actually change anything. I, I forget if the doctor called his mom and actually talked to her and if they read He calls her and he doesn't talk to her because he says it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, and so like mm-hmm. even kind of where I'm, I lie. I love that's such a good little moment. Yeah, so even with having that information, like nothing really changes. So again, I think that's a really smart decision to show the uh, to show that more passive turning into more active, where what he does with his visions doesn't really matter at the beginning. It just shows that he has that power. But then by the time you get to the end, when he is the most active. The thing that he tries to do, like you said, messes up, but then to, uh, to to successful consequences. I don't know. I just think that's a really uh, interesting note about this movie that most people would probably look at it like, oh, he has these powers and he's doing all this stuff to save all these people. It's like, no, he really isn't. Like, there's not a lot that he really does. Until the to end. me, that's maybe connected to. I don't. It might be something a little personal with Stephen King and his relationship with like Christianity, uh, because in in the book, it's much more prominent that his mother is like yeah. a nutso Christian, like believes that she goes down all sorts of weird tangents. She joins a cult that thinks that like aliens are going to come and bring them to heaven, and like <laughs> gives all her money to buying like a. I don't know, a nail from the crucifix or I don't know, something like that. But it's just like, dude, you are like going way too far with this. And she is so convinced that Johnny 
got in this accident for a reason and has these visions for a reason and has this uh kind of divine intervention yeah divine intervention and i think you know the characters within the story and king himself are kind of always going like that's all kind of crazy it's a little bit bullshit it's like like let's not motivate ourselves but like because of these beliefs but maybe there's something to it like maybe maybe it's all real and to me i think that's kind of where this lands is like you know he has like you said he has the vision about the daughter burning but we don't see that he really did anything to change that you know like yeah he's not making these impacts and they're just kind of ramping up to the the hockey vision which is what solidifies for him i can change the future i don't just see it and alter it yeah and that leads him to literally saving the world from like nuclear destruction or world war three or something so it is kind of like you know this this dude had the you know who, who he perceives as the one sarah like taken away from him he has been stripped of his life in uh you know pursuit of destiny that he doesn't want and so maybe this all is all it is is like mm-hmm. he's supposed to have this like slow progression of visions to lead to this big final moment where he does what he's destined to do, which is just to stop Stillston. Yeah, yeah. It's why the episodic structure I think works so well for me because they are so, they they just brilliantly like kind of like showcase his progression as a character, and they feel like just perfect. Like it's like such a perfect three act structure. Um, it's also interesting too the the dead zone. The title of the movie, the dead zone. Like the meaning of it is different in the movie than in the book because in the movie it's like the dead zone is is the area where I can change things. It's what that's the future I can't see because it's the future that I can change to. It is you know about the agency that he has. Whereas in the book, I think I always kind of forget exactly how it is, but the dead zone is basically like when he gets in the accident. There's a now a dead zone in his brain or something and he's mm-hmm. he has to it's kind of like the idea of like your senses grow stronger when you lose one <laughs> or it's like the like the lucy thing where it's like okay there's a dead zone in your brain so now we have to activate the other like you know whatever percent of the brain that you don't use which is where <laughs> your you know psychic abilities lie <laughs> See, and, and i always yeah. thought that it was it's just, a little sillier i always thought that it was more like six sense of not he sees dead people but like he can see when people are dying because they are in the dead zone like that the dead zone uh so um going back just a hair to the um like he he has a purpose or he has a you know a, a destiny i don't remember the exact lines but earlier in the movie uh one of the characters uh says to johnny something about his gift and like he or you know like they they say something about god or his gift or something like that and he gets super pissed, like, you know, what God would do this, or this isn't a gift. And he talks a little bit more about, like, how hellacious it is for him. But then at the end, he has a line more along the lines of, this is a gift. This is my purpose to to um, to, to stop Stilson. And mm. I can't remember what those exact lines were, and I wish that I had written them down. Because, again, it's, it is two lines of dialogue that make perfect sense within the context of where the movie is at that moment and where it's going. 
but it he also... just says I thought this power was a curse, but now I can see it's a gift. It was, I can't go in hiding anymore. I've been running and hiding. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. so again, like it's it's very on the nose and it's very direct, but it's also like a, a very concise book ending to his character development. Again, in a way that doesn't feel like uh, it's you know slamming the the character development hammer over the head of this is what the character is trying to be because it it is just part of the conversation that would make sense in that moment and yeah th- this movie you know uh, well he when he says that he's re- writing the letter to sarah is, is, is she the did. one who said something to him earlier about it maybe I, well, remember. I, I said is she the one that said something earlier to him about it being a gift i can't remember i think so yeah well the the, the like sheriff is the one that says like god oh yeah you're right Okay. And then he goes into his rant of like, you know what God gave me? Like, yeah, it's Bannerman. Four right. years for me and my girl, and blah blah blah. That's yeah. that's right. Yeah, but, the um, well, Ban- Bannerman gets his end anyway for just you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. He gets killed by Cujo, doesn't he? Yeah, he gets eaten by Cujo. So, you know, and also, isn't there also a weird thing in Cujo where like there's a uh, King kind of like implies that Cujo might actually be uh, possessed by Frank Dodd. <laughs> I think Whoa. like yeah. Kucho is actually either possessed by Frank Dodd or like by the spirit that possesses Frank Dodd or whatever in this oh movie. Yeah, there's like some other like o- more overt supernatural things. Did Kucho have a giant <laughs> boner when he was attacking the car? Because those are the first two Castle Rock books. Mm-hmm. Dead Zone's first and then Kucho is second. Yeah. So that's where those connections are. Yep. Anyway. Anyway, I love this movie. I'm adoring this movie. Not adoring this movie. I adored this movie, past tense, and I am adoring this conversation. Having so much fun with everything that we're talking about. Uh, I also want to be respectful of time. And, Anthony, I know that you can't stay for too, too much longer. So let's go ahead and start wrapping things up. Um, And there's one thing that I want to mention that uh, that we've not yet talked about. And then we can go around and, uh, and get the rest of you. Uh, if there's any sort of closing arguments or closing points that uh, that you want to talk about in all of the conversation about Dodd and all of the conversation about when um, when he finally impaled himself on the scissors, we've not talked about the fact that his mom knew. And and that to me was such a I don't know there was there was something about that element that showed just the darkness of of people where it's it's one thing to understand why Dodd was doing what he was doing because he's evil and vile and whatever. But like, Oh my God, the fact that his mom knew and she was okay with it because I, I, maybe it was the, Oh, but he's my son and I don't want anything bad to happen to my son. But it almost felt like she was kind of okay with it. I, I don't know, but that little detail, certainly trying to protect him. Well, with with King too, I love that. Like, okay, with Derry, you've got it. You've got supernatural horror in Pennywise. With you know Salem's Lot, you've got vampires. Castle Rock, it's just that fucking people are terrible. <laughs> I mean, the whole reason you know when Leland Gaunt comes to town for needful things, he's able to manipulate everyone because everyone is just awful. The whole town holds all these secrets. And this is like start our first little taste of that. Where, yeah, this is, the, of course, things like that can happen in this town. Because, look, the town has a serial killer, and the mom knew all along and never did anything about it. Yeah. 
It's mm-hmm. a, it's such a cool little introduction to a town where it's just people are shit there, and it's a town just cloaked in darkness because people don't do the right thing. And it takes an outsider like Johnny to be able to do that. Or like Ed Harris. Uh, or, <laughs> or Ed Harris. I almost, oh, yeah, no, no, no. I almost said that Ed Harris is playing the same character that Tom Scarrett plays, but that's not true. He plays Pangborn, who's... Mm-hmm. I got confused with the uh, fucking... Yeah, he, 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 he's, uh, he's who takes over for Bannerman once Bannerman gets eaten by Cujo. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> but he's... he oh, Jesus Christ, the dark half... Mm-hmm. With Michael Rooker, Michael Rooker plays yeah. the same character that Ed Harris plays. Yeah. Yes, good. God. Really, cut it. Fascinating. No, we're not cutting that, but we're not going to spend time <laughs> talking about that because I just watched the Dark Half and Needful Things, and we can't have this be a six-hour episode talking about both of those movies. <laughs> Yet, <clears throat> uh, did you not realize they were the same character? Oh, of course not. I I know that all of these stories are connected, but I had no idea they were supposed to be the same character. That is That's fascinating, funny. and we will talk about that after this episode is over. Uh, so yeah, that that was my last thing. Is just all of these different character elements, all of these uh, different traumas that um, uh, Christopher Walken's going through, all of the terrible things that Dodd was doing, the fact that Dodd's mom knew. And when she tried to shoot uh, um, Christopher Walken and the cop, I don't think that was just her like, oh, don't take away my son. I think that was more of a, no, y'all are in the wrong here. He's just doing what God made him do to these women who were, yeah, so she was one of the worst. She was on screen for, you know, a minute, but... Ooh, lasting impact with, with how violent. We need to see a prequel movie with her, Mrs. Carmody, and Carrie White's mother. Like all the <laughs> Bible camp. Oh my god, Bi- a Bible camp movie about that? Yeah, I love it. Oh yeah. god, that would be that terrible. Would be something right there. Ah, uh, all right. Uh, I'd Dan, probably just about cringe you? the whole way through. Any <laughs> uh, any elements that we have not yet brought up that that you feel that that, that we just we're, that we're going to be doing a disservice to the dead zone if we do not discuss it. Dan, to you. Um, Dan, I don't know. Eric, oh, I'll say Eric. this. Um, Dan, Eric, I, Eric, can yeah. you hear me? Yeah, I said, I said Dan, up? not Eric. We're starting oh, with I'm Dan. <laughs> My bad. I didn't hear the uh, dear God. All right. Shut me the fuck up. I'll say I've covered everything I want to cover. Eric, do you have anything? <laughs> <laughs> um, Isla, the audiobook of this is narrated by James Franco, who, you know, We've talked about it before. He's not, uh, you know, maybe not in the best light right now, but it's a good audiobook performance. And also, I just want to point out that when he um, does the narration for Wyzak, the doctor, I swear to God, he is doing his Tommy Wiseau uh, <laughs> performance from The Disaster Artist, and it's incredible. Um, it's a very good, like, overall, it's, like, legitimately a great, like, uh, read of the book. Uh, but I just love it every time that Wyzak's on <laughs> because he's... <laughs> Seriously, sounds if like we make like, this. Franco needs to be Dodd. He oh, really does. Yeah, that would be a good. Yeah, he would. He would definitely work in that role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I I love this movie. I think this is one of the one of the King adaptations that I think that every time I watch it, I'm just going to find more and more to love about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can only improve with age. Very true. Anthony, what about you? Any elements that we uh, have not yet discussed that, again, you'd feel like we'd be doing a disservice to the Dead Zone if we don't at least briefly mention them? Um, 
I think the only thing we haven't we haven't talked about that I think is really important to me is is the fact that they made a huge change in having Sarah at the um like the campaign rally at the end and that it's her baby oh yeah that mm-hmm. that uh Stilson raises up in front of Johnny um because it's it's just some random woman and random baby in the book mm-hmm. um and I think that is so smart. I mean, it's it's like right there, you know. I, I think it's. I think maybe King said that like it, that it's a change that he's really happy with. Um, and that's that's one thing about the movie is it is just a touch too episodic. It it's a miracle that it works as well as it as it does with mm-hmm. how episodic is as it is. And I think maybe, you know, I don't want to elongate this by going into like what like. What you could have done to make it less episodic, maybe you could have woven, you know, like you said, Stilson in earlier the way mm-hmm. the book does, you know, maybe, yeah, I don't know, Sarah's married to the sheriff that's, I, I don't know, these are terrible ideas, but there's like <laughs> some way you could have tried to weave these episodes together a little more to like lead to a final thing. Um, but having Sarah there and it be her baby is such a genius way to keep her around, keep that thread going and also make it so much more, uh, impactful for Johnny to, to have this baby like held in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but like, she is the reason why he misses. Like he, he wasn't like, you know, he hides out in that little balcony up there and he doesn't even look until he's ready to fire and he's distracted by her presence when he sees her, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, because she's up on the stage. Because Stilson is like, "Ooh, a baby! Put that up! Put you know, put her with the baby up on stage. It'll make me look good." Because <laughs> he, yeah, does he like kiss the baby? And he's like, "I'm supposed to do this," or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> God, uh, it really is like the book. I mean, you know, it, I think the book is absolutely. If you like this movie and you haven't read the book, like go read the book. It's God, it's man, really fantastic. Oh. It adds so much flash um to what's already there but it is it is really incredible how this movie like consolidates the book um and doesn't really leave you wanting much more yeah i mean it feels like a pretty good it doesn't really feel like it leaves that much out you know like i feel the same way about christine where it just is such a brilliant adaptation that even though it's you know adapting a four to six hundred page novel it doesn't feel like there's anything important left on the cutting room floor. Well, and also this movie is only like an hour and 40 or an hour and 43. Yeah, this, is a, this is a breezy movie. Well, it, I was going to say it feels like it's so jam packed with story that when I got to the end, I was like, oh, the, it, it's over. Like, because it just, yeah. it felt like a much longer movie because of how much story. And I, I might be the only one who, uh, maybe not like the only one ever, but uh, of us here, the episodic nature didn't really bug me that much because I felt like each episode was Johnny trying to escape like a different part of his past. So to mm-hmm. me, the, the through line narrative that is bringing all of it together is Johnny trying to escape and not deal with some of these things. And, and so like each episode is, it's almost like him trying to start over. So I don't know, yeah. it, it didn't really bug me that it felt episodic. Um, there were a few times that I not confused, but kind of wanted there to be a little bit more uh, bringing it all together. But 
Yeah, because of when each of those episodes took place, I think it worked for me at least. It's just um, I think it's just one of those things where it's just generally not how movies work. Sure, you know, like it's just people don't usually have the confidence in their ability to make a movie that you know seemingly disjointed. Um, but yeah, no, I do think that it works really well, and I also kind of like the idea that like every you know twenty to thirty minutes, the movie makes a hard left turn into something unexpected because it feels like you know for a movie that's about a guy who can see the future you can never tell what's going to happen next in this movie you know like even even though i've read the book and i've seen the movie before it's still like is always like i never you know for the two times i've watched it i never really know exactly what's going to happen next mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i think no matter what what kind of movie you're making what kind of story you're telling like what your approach is like it all comes down to pacing like pacing is what truly like makes or breaks a movie or like ma- like makes you feel a movie's runtime um yeah and this movie is paced really really well yeah yeah 100% indeed all right. Uh, if there are no more closing arguments, not arguments, I always feel like that uh, it's giving the wrong impression. No, we're all pretty much in agreement here, Nathan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually Nathan and I are, are debating with one another, but I think we're, we're on the same page today. So that's, that's well, no I, arguments. I, I didn't start this episode with, I have thoughts. Uh, so, so yeah, if, if there's no other elements that, uh, that any of us are especially driven to talk about, Let's go ahead and wrap things up. Um, Anthony, once again, thank you so, so, so very much for joining us. Uh, This has been an absolute blast. Um, I know that you already said a lot of the projects that you've been working on. Go ahead and do all of your socials of where people can find you, where they can uh, see some of your work. I know that some of your shorts are, I think, on the Alter um, uh, YouTube page. Uh, Mm -hmm. Your package Mm -hmm. is on Shutter. but, but yeah, all of all of the socials where people can find your work, where they can uh, you know stay on, on on top of the things you've got coming out. Yeah, um, yes. Uh, when Sustra Stirs and Squirt Reynolds are on Alter, um, they're also on my Vimeo page, which is Shock Treatment Productions, um, which you can find a couple other like little mini projects I've done on there. Um, I did like this weird little Krampus short one christmas <laughs> definitely want to do more christmas <laughs> stuff sometime um yeah scare packages on shutter uh you'll be hearing very soon where you can find scare package 2 um and then i am in post on my first feature which is called frogman and is a found footage project that you know just like everything else i'm like this might have been a big mistake i think i i don't know what i'm doing but I, this really came from the heart. This is not a found like a first feature that's found footage because it's easy or cheap. It was quite the opposite. It was it was cheap, but it was very <laughs> very challenging. Uh, if you had been making movies for years the traditional way, and then you try to make a found footage movie, it's like starting from square one. Like none of that knowledge does anything to help you. Yeah. Um, but I. I don't think it's a total disaster. I'm pretty happy with what we've got. So yeah, if you follow me on Instagram, uh, AJ underscore cousins is where I'm at on Instagram. You'll, you'll see Frogman stuff soon. So let me ask you this. My, my nine year old son is obsessed with frogs. Can my nine year old son watch Frogman? Uh, (laughs) If you're the kind of father I would be, yes, (laughs) there's no, there's nothing. 
that I think would scar a child in the wrong way. Um, just kind of in the dead zone way. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there, I did. Are... Uh, my my nine year old son. We were we so we started watching Sweeney Todd the other night. Uh, and my nine year and like I guess for whatever reason I wasn't really thinking about the fact that this is an R rated movie. And when the first throat was slit. My nine-year-old, his mouth just dropped wide open. He was like, he literally started squalling. And I was like, oh, because as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, shit, I've made a mistake. I completely forgot like, how bad this is. Oh, um, so maybe maybe we'll hold off on Frogman for a little did, while. Did you at but, least? Uh, he did right. end up finishing Sweeney Todd, though. I was like, look, if you got to face your fear. We got to get through this now. I've, I've, we've opened up a can of worms. We got to. I've honestly never through. thought about. Uh, yeah, what the age limit on Frogman would be. But now that you're bringing it up, I do feel like it is... Oh, man, I would be so honored if this was one of those, you know, uh, like kindred horror child. gateway... I think it could be that, maybe, for the wrong children. Or the right children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, because frogs, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> frogs, man. When, <laughs> when I set out to make this, I, I had no idea that frogs were going to like kind of come back in a big way it's kind of weird and maybe it's just because me i i seek out frogs and people send me frog shit i'm like man frogs are super hot right now (laughs) (laughs) but your experience might be very different so two questions one uh are there any frogs in suits in frogman Uh, no i you know i really tried to justify putting a frog in a suit <laughs> or a hat on a frog but i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't do it you know within the world that we were building but it's, a, it's, the thing mean, it's all about justification can't <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> frogman 2 we will find a reason <laughs> uh but i think i think it is uh i think it's going to be really fun i think it's super you know campy and goofy in the right ways and it's i i personally love found footage i know there's a lot of trash I love found it. footage out there. There's just a lot of trash horror in general when it's made for the wrong reasons. I think when found footage is done right and for the right reasons, it's fantastic. And mm-hmm. you should kind of ask yourself if you're thinking about making a st- if you're thinking if you have a story and you're like, I think I'll make this found footage. Does it need to be found footage? Could you yeah. tell it in a, in a, in a traditional narrative way, and you're not missing out on anything? And like that should be your your answer, yes or no, there should be found footage. And for me, this was like the only way to tell this story. I am one of those people who does not typically love found footage for that very reason. Um, <laughs> most people are just like, horror is easy. Found footage is easy. Found footage horror, boom, easiest movie in the world to make. And it's like, you're doing it wrong. And to, it's like, too many it's things. Sweet, cheap, don't have to worry about composition. We just give the actor a camera, have him run around. Yeah, easy, so easy. I typically yeah. do not like found footage because I feel like so many of them are not thought out. Um, but yeah, with everything else that you've done, and especially with uh, with that talking about like, is there a reason for why you're doing it? I am very excited. Uh, also, Robert Woods in the chat posted, "Jesus Christ, I'm pumped for Frogman." So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you know if you know the legend of Frogman, yes, this is a real. Seemingly, you know, apparently real thing. It's like Bigfoot. It's a cryptid that takes, you know, place in Loveland, Ohio is where the frogman apparently resides and has a magic wand. And yeah, I just accidentally stumbled upon this mythology one day, like on set for another thing. And I was like, oh my God, what? 
is this and why is, does a movie not exist yet and we started just like spitballing like on set that day what what this movie would be i mean if he has a magic wand it would have been so easy to give him a top hat uh all right the second question <laughs> Your uh, your production or your uh, Vimeo page that you said is shock treatment. Uh, oh my god, Nathan! I saw your face yep. light up when he said that. <laughs> I saw it today. I re- I rewatched or no, I guess I watched it. Before. I watched Winchester Stirs today, and I noticed that it said shock treatment productions. And uh, and Anthony, I don't know if you know this, but shock treatment now has a storied history on this podcast. <laughs> it does. It's true. Oh. Is it in any way connected to the um to the shock treatment movie the pseudo follow-up to rocky horror picture show i still haven't seen it which is really embarrassing to admit because i love rocky horror picture show i love musicals in general and that is one of my like pie in the sky dreams is to make a horror musical i have it all figured out um but it would be very expensive but yeah i gotta see that movie the name did not come from that it was just kind of yeah i don't know kind of just a punchy production name and i think what you know the kind of stuff that i want to make is like a shock to the system or something right itchy like that you know (laughs) <laughs> yeah that, that that makes a lot of sense i was uh very much hoping it was shock treatment uh after the episode <laughs> i will send you a link to our musicals popcorn punch out that we did where uh i fought very hard for shock treatment got a uh, valiant effort to get guests to come oh it's a good movie i'll watch it no, i'll you get won't. to it you, you'll watch it and you'll give me just as much shit as I give you uh, for James Cameron. All right. Uh, Anthony, any, I don't know. I'm not any other... as you are. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> any, any other information that you want to give people, um, uh, again, about where they can follow you or, or any of your films or any of the other promotional stuff that you did not have a chance to get to since we got sidetracked so easily? Oh, uh, I think that's about it. If you find me on Instagram, that is where I'm most active and I'll definitely post about whatever I have going on. Uh, yeah, shock treatment productions on Vimeo. You can find some little things that have not been mentioned or, or like widely known. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm excited to make more weird shit soon. Um, Thanks for having me on. I would love to, anytime you have something you want to talk about, musicals, Cronenberg, whatever, I'm so down. Absolutely. I I have not forgotten that you said that you're going to come back for the Super Mario uh, Bros. (gasps) Oh my God. Don't even get me (laughs) started on that. That has been like so... Yes. Super Mario Bros. When when we covered it for the 25th, uh, Anthony said, when you do the 30th, have me on. I said, okay. And I have not... Is that next year? Yes. Okay. Nice. Oh my God. Are you serious? I yes. can't wait. And next year, and also, there's going to be the new Super Mario Bros. movie, that the anime. <laughs> yeah, which that. I have a lot of thoughts about. So please, <laughs> yeah, bring me back. I want to talk about this. We should do. We should do both of them. Like, do just do a whole double do, Yeah, do both. Or maybe uh, I don't know. We could throw the Super Mario Bros. show in there too. Why not go fucking hog wild? Yeah, we'll just we'll, let's we'll go just hog do a Super wild. Super Mario d- series. Or we can do a uh, video game adaptation um, punch out with a special Super Mario Bros. episode. That would be fun because, uh, man, their video ad- game adaptations would be very interesting. Yeah. To dig into. I would definitely uh, try to fuck the rules 
up a little bit and get like Overlord in there as like a Wolfenstein movie or hey, you know, throw Wreck It Ralph in there and stuff. That or uh, I think the greatest video game adaptation of all time for a video game that doesn't exist is Gods of Egypt. Ooh, I've never seen Gods of Egypt. That's very interesting. It it would have to be yeah. for video games that actually exist. All right, Dan, where do you want people to find you? You can find me over on Twitter at HBO to Front Row. Um, sorry, HBO to Front Row and HBO to Front Row dot com. And Eric, where do you want people landing in your dead zone? Um, they can do that on Twitter at the Chimerican, which is T H E C H I M E R I C A N. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews and on Letterbox at Eric J A Y. And <laughs> still so dumb. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you can follow me slash the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd at Video Monster Pod. You can also follow me personally on Letterboxd at The Gargoyle. That's G A R G Y L E because it's a gargoyle wearing an Argyle sweater. And Eric, if people enjoyed this episode, what should they do? Uh, they should rate, review, and subscribe to Video Monsters wherever they get their podcasts. Leave us some five-star reviews. Spread the love. Uh, we want to get some more people in here listening to Video Monsters. Um, you know, maybe we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast if you if you do all that fun stuff. Uh, because we love you and we appreciate any support you want to offer us. And Dan, as you put your hands on the Discord and see into the future, why should people keep coming back? Well, you should keep coming back because we're going to continue our Stephen King coverage for the remainder of this month, uh, including a super fun episode coming up with The Night Flyer, which is just a criminally underrated film, and I'm excited to talk about it. I'm pretty excited about it. I can't (laughs) wait. Also, I cannot wait until we do our King Ranking Popcorn Punch-Out because Eric is going to be so very mad at me for so many of my votes. And it's gonna I'm be s- so fun. Are you are you already like pre mad? I'm I'm very much pre mad. I've I have so many notes about like how I'm going to get things on there. I yeah I've I've been putting a lot of thought into this and I'm I'm terrified. <laughs> very I can't terrified. wait. All right. Uh, once again, Anthony, absolute blast. Thank you so so yeah, this so great. very much. We cannot wait to have <laughs> you back. Uh, stick around for like two seconds after we close things out and I'll give you a heads up on some of the things that we've got coming up if you want to join us for any of those alright that's been it for this episode of Video Monsters where we take movies and Stephen King seriously but not ourselves good night everybody